Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series which looks at science fiction from all angles, covering the past, the present, and the future. I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And we're recording in December 2023. And today, having returned from our time travel trip back to the late 1960s, we're coming bang up to date. Colin, have you recovered yet from all that uh, new wave speculative fiction from last time? I have. Although I think we might be dipping into a little more of modern new wave based on some of the stories in Uncanny. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so later on, we'll have a quiz and our usual recommendations of past, present and future science fiction. But uh, what are we doing this episode then to bring us back to contemporary SF? Colin, tell us about Uncanny. Through the waves of new wave, <laughs> we are going to jump into this month's edition of Uncanny Magazine. For the technically minded, it's issue number 55, uh, which I think is dated November, December 2023. Yes. I'm just reaching for my paper notes now. So I'm going to be doing a lot of rustling today. I don't know about you. I don't know a huge amount about Uncanny. I'm just aware that it's been around for a few years and it's picked up uh, a few Hugo Awards and probably other awards in recent times. It's sustained largely through Patreon and Kickstarter and direct sales. And like a lot of e-magazines, for want of want of a better term, it's had the rug pulled under it by Amazon, who yes. decided to more or less do away with magazine subscriptions and just make magazines available to, I think, Prime subscribers. So all the magazines are feeling the pinch, and Uncanny has an editorial that talks about that in this issue. But it seems to be fairly buoyant at the moment. I just know that I've seen Uncanny show up on a lot of award lists. Yeah. Can I ask how you acquired this? Are you reading it the online version, or did you grab a copy for the Kindle? Or uh, Yeah, I, I read it entirely from the website. What about you? Oh, I bought a copy of the magazine. Okay, so you, you handed over some good money, so you, <laughs> you've got more of an investment in this than I do. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it was, I want to say, 3 or $4. It wasn't that expensive. Mm -hmm. And after reading the introduction about, you know, the Uncanny Valley, where they're talking about the struggles that they're having because of what Amazon has done, in retrospect, I was happy that I did it. And I have to say, having read through the entire issue, I was much more inclined to give them money than I was beforehand, you know. I'd, I'd read a couple of stories from previous issues of Uncanny, so I wasn't totally new to it as a magazine. But I don't think I'd ever read an entire issue, which is what I did this time. But because they made it all available for free, I, I just read it all off the website. And it's not a bad reading experience, and they do give you direct links to the uh, audio readings of some of the stories. That's quite a nice feature. They're really giving you a lot for free. So should we leap straight in and begin reviewing the stories? Yeah, let's do that. The first story is uh, Esqueleto by Anna Hurtado, who I believe is Venezuelan slash Ecuadorian. My notes say that Martina and her mother live inside the carcass of a dead whale. And it turns out, if we believe what Martina tells us, that the whale fell from the sky rather than being pushed up from below, as her teacher has told her. So it's a kind of a, a mythology that is unique to the story, it seems to me. And the, this one had a lot of Spanish terms in it, and I don't speak a word of Spanish. So I did find that I wanted to look things up, and I discovered that the title of the story means skeleton. I had to double check that because since I speak Spanish and my sons are fluent in Spanish, ah. Uh, I, I didn't know what the word escaleto means. Hmm. And I was talking to my son about this, and he, he said, do you mean esqueleto? Ah. And then all of a sudden it made sense. Oh, yeah. you mean skeleton. Yes, of course. So the, the title of this, at least on the copy that I have on my nook, is missing an accent on the third, uh, second, second to last syllable. Ah. That makes it from esqueleto, which is some unknown Spanish word, to esqueleto, which is ah. skeleton. Yeah, I, I can see that now. It seems so obvious. A couple of other Spanish terms, just while we're on the subject of Spanish. There's, there was reference to los gusanos, and it turns out that means worms. And there's a phrase that's used 
which uh, I, I've no idea how you pronounce Spanish, but it, to me it looks like te juro que, and it means I swear to you. So with a little bit of looking up, uh, parts of the story were unlocked for me. No doubt anybody who, who knows some Spanish would have had no trouble with that at all. That's not to say that Spanish is an obstacle to the story as a whole, but this one, I have to say, I don't remember an awful lot about. My notes, this is just my interpretation, uh, I've got, it seems to be about, I, I use that phrase a lot, seems to be about the ability to dream, to think lofty thoughts, and to not be bogged down by the mundane. The story seems to be telling us to, that it's better to imagine a balena of the skies swimming above, calling to you, than to worry about the worms and the condors eating the carcass. I assume balena is a whale. Other than that, this story has been pushed from my mind by all the other things I've read since. You can take from that that I didn't get much out of this story. What were your thoughts? It was just very unusual. Mm. Like I said, it, it kind of reminded me of, of a new wave thing. Yeah. So I, I was kind of there with, oh, okay, we're living inside of a skeleton. And so we are intimately aware of like, you know, rot and things feeding on it. Yeah. And then it just kind of went <laughs> from there. <laughs> Is this another one of these stories then, like the ones we saw in New Worlds in our previous episode, where it feels like you need a key to unlock it and, and we don't have the key? Or, or is it that we do understand it and it's just not that good? Maybe it's not good. Maybe we just don't like it. Maybe we're not getting the vibe that's supposed to come across from that. Yeah. It's so hard to tell because of, you know, yeah, you just don't find a lot of stories these days about living inside of, you know, rotting whale corpses. <laughs> no, no. Well, not, si not since Jonah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's at least a couple of millennia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I came away from it feeling a little bit underwhelmed. And it hasn't resonated with me at all. So sorry to Anna Hurtado. Shall we go to the next story? Yeah. So what is the next story on your list? Um, I've got The Quiet of Drowning by Cal Coleman. Yeah, that was a challenging story. Do you want to try and summarize it? Yes. A young girl has tried to commit suicide and thankfully failed. And so she is in inpatient counseling. And it's the story of the people that she meets in there and her struggle with herself yeah. and what happens when she is released. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've, I found challenging with this story was I wasn't completely sure it was science fiction. For yeah. me, so many stories like this, not necessarily dealing with people with mental struggles or, or other issues, is I can't tell the difference between the science fictional or fantastic elements and someone who is an unreliable narrator. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, actually. I mean, in my notes, I put all through she is accompanied by the other, in, in quotation marks, uh, the other who appears to be an alternative version of herself. So to me, that was the speculative fiction element of the story, because it's, you know, it's, it's a bit like having a, a, an angel and a devil sitting on your shoulder. Yeah. Or, or your conscious and your unconscious being at war with each other or, or that kind of thing. But you're right. This could be an, an unreliable narrator. Yeah. The, the proximity of it being right next to the... So in the published version, it's immediately followed by, we're looking for the best. Yeah. Yeah. So that is unquestionably a ghost story because there are yes. hauntings and other things happening. And so there could be a supernatural element to this. It's just, I was a little taken aback with the subject matter right up front. And then, yeah, again, those things pull me out and away from stories rather than helping me engage. Yeah. I thought the, the story was very good in, in one respect, and that was capturing the, the kind of family dynamic. The girl seems to be influenced by the previous suicide of an aunt and the reaction of her mother and father seemed to show a, a sort of a, a lack of understanding and a lack of communication. And I thought all of that was really very good. But again, that's not a science fictional element. That's that's like somebody writing a a, a mainstream story, and it, and it did hold my attention while I was reading it. But uh, my final note was, it does feel a little bit like a story written by a teenager. I would agree, and I mm -hmm. think that's one of the great successes of it, because I don't think Kel Coleman. And I'm gonna skip to the end here, and then look at their their bio real quick. Yeah, uh, Kel Coleman is a mom, editor, and Ignite nominated author. 
Their fiction has been in Faya, Anathema, and several others. So mm-hmm. uh, given that they're a mother, could be a teenager. Yeah. But, you know, I think yeah. just did a great job of capturing that voice and bringing it to the fore. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about this, but my wife does uh, gynecological care here in, in Oregon. Mm. And the clinic that she works at once a week recently received funding from the state so that everyone could have suicide awareness training. Okay, yeah. I don't know that she needs to learn the lessons that a person might learn from this story about understanding how someone that has committed suicide and might be thinking about doing it again is Mm. going through. Yeah. But uh, I might hand this off to her and see if she wants to read the story. And and get her perspective on it. Yeah. 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 Shall we go on to the next one? Yeah. The Pandemonium Waltz by Jeffrey Ford. Now, Jeffrey Ford, I think, is probably one of the better known writers in this particular issue. He's won quite a few awards over over the years. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Shirley Jackson, Nebula, World Fantasy Award. And this one, my first note says, so there's this travelling dance show. You have to audition to be allowed in, and if you're not good enough, you get ejected, uh, which is what happens to the two of the characters. And it felt to me like it was a first draft of a story. It felt as if it was being made up as the writer went along, which is not a bad thing to do. But it felt like it then needed the author to go back to the beginning and revise it and tie things together a bit more. Because I came to the end of the story and I just thought, OK, that's your first draft. Now can I have the finished story, please? <laughs> bit, bit weird. It did remind me, oddly, of Something Wicked This Way Comes in the way that the characters were kind of presented with these strange circumstances as they went through different doors or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I I didn't find this at all interesting. What did you think of this? So I don't know if it's this particular issue of the magazine or if this is a general flow, but if we make the distinction between science fiction and fantastic and above that sits the speculative, yeah, this is another fantastic story. Right. And it seems like it's a story within a story with maybe a third level. Mm-hmm. Because you know, as, as part of this traveling dance show, if you stumble, the, the floor opens and drops you out and you're, <laughs> you're rejected. And there's a kind of a hallucinatory section of it where these violet petals drop through. And yeah. I believe the quote is they, they fuck up your mind. Yeah. And so you, you never really know, right? Is the person high and hallucinating or is this real? It's told in a semi-linear way. So it, it almost seems like you get the backstory to know what's going on, and then you get the lead in, and then there's a hallucination, and then the guy wakes up from his hallucination because he has been on the dance floor, and then he falls through the floor. <laughs> and so if that kind of a thing isn't, isn't something you enjoy, you're going to find this story really hard to follow. <laughs> I found it easy to follow, but I got to the end and thought, well, what was the point of that then? Yeah. <laughs> I did notice in the interview uh, with Jeffrey Ford, so it's a very short interview, but he says, and I quote, I usually don't know much about where the stories are going when I start. And that is exactly how I felt when I was reading the story. I felt that the author didn't know where the story was going and the author was making it up as he went along. I want you to go back and point up the symbolism. I want you to, to tie the characters to the events. I want the the things that happen to carry some meaning for the characters in relation to their lives. And I didn't get any of that from the story. Maybe it's there and I'm just too dense to see it. it it's called the Pandemonium Waltz and it just seemed like the emphasis was on the pandemonium. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of coming back and punctuating the symbolism or doing the other things you mentioned, it's, it's an experience. You read it through once and then you get to kind of marinate in it. Yeah, and yeah. decide well, what what happened and what was real and did I like this and yeah yeah there are some good stories in this issue though and I think we're we're coming to one of them now the next one I've got is the year without sunshine by Naomi Kritzer yeah I think that one that was my favorite I think it's really the best story in the entire magazine this yeah. this issue I agree hundred percent yeah I think we've come across Naomi Kritzer before. She's an American writer, and she has won a Hugo before, and I think an Edgar Award. 
Would you like to summarize this story? Yeah. Let me do it a couple of different ways. Yeah. I have seen the musical Come From Away, mm-hmm. which is the story of a very small island in Canada that ends up hosting 7,000 visitors at the beginning of 9-11. And the remarkable thing about that is the island only has about 7,000 people. <laughs> mm. So literally overnight, the population doubles and they have all these guests. The, the world is in chaos. The United States has been attacked by terrorists. And you have all these people that literally show up on your doorstep. And so what do you do? Well, the town of Gander, which is one of the larger towns on the island, organizes and they start hosting everyone they can. And they pack every house, every school. They feed them, house them, shower them, let them use their phones so they can call home and let people know that they're safe and to find out what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible story about you know hope and hospitality. And if there was a word that described the opposite of terrorism, I think that would be it. Yes. So in the, in the year without sunshine, some mysterious apocalypse has happened. Mm-hmm. And we have this community that had been loosely tied together through the WhatsApp social media app. Mm-hmm. And then it's how they come together to support one another through this time, sharing skills, sharing resources, sharing lives, learning about one another, learning how to live with one another, learning how to protect one another. Beautiful. That really sums it up very well. Yeah, it is entirely possible. It is the best thing I have read the entire year. I thought it was very good as well. One of the things I liked about it is that it's not totally post-apocalyptic because, we, well, for a start, we don't know exactly what the disaster is that has befallen the world, but mm-hmm. we know that some services are continuing. So, for example, they have electricity, but it's not always available. They have gas, but it's not always available. So public services are running really on a on a knife edge. You don't know from one day to the next what services you're going to have and what you can rely on. And then the people sort of club together to either fill in the gaps in those services or to bolster what's already there or to guarantee that what minimal services are available are sufficient. It's really a very feel-good story, I think. Mm -hmm. And it focuses on initially keeping one woman alive. There's a woman who's Uh, I think it's oxygen that she needs a constant supply of. So they set up this elaborate system of generators and wind turbines and bike generators. This is the the most remarkable part of the story. And this is what makes it science fiction. They kind of set up this garage or shed with lots of bicycles in there connected to generators or dynamos. And people from the community volunteer to spend time cycling in order to generate the electricity to ensure that the oxygen supply thing uh, continues to work for this one woman. I mean, it's not all about the one woman, but that's the focus of it. It seems to me that this is also a political statement. The story is basically saying this is how we should be. This is what we should be doing. And yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah. Well, and the story kind of, it almost ends that way as well. Towards the end, they are invaded by people from another adjacent community. Yeah. And their response is not to imprison them, not to hurt them, not to kill them, but to say, you know, your your teenagers came into our community, they did damage, you need to pay this amount to get them back, and they do. And one of the two kids, the one that broke his ankle, several weeks or months later, he comes back and wants to be part of that community versus the one that he had been in. Yeah. And then to cap it off, after that sequence of events, uh, and this is a spoiler, I mean, what you just said is a spoiler, this is a spoiler, so if anyone doesn't want a spoiler, switch off now and come back in five minutes. But uh, after that series of events, a patch of blue sky appears for the first time in over a year. (laughs) And I mean, in my head, I heard the Beatles song, Here Comes the Sun. (laughs) And it's such a beautiful ending. I mean, it's a bit trite, I suppose. And the cynic in me should really be saying, ah, that's not how things would really be. But it really is that these people have held out against these really adverse circumstances. They've made things work and they focused everything on helping those in need. And they kind of get their reward at the end because it's as if the world is is going back to normal. 
My final note, I wrote beautiful story of hope. And then I put by far the best, most engaging story in the issue so far. And I think if this doesn't get some award nominations, I will be very, very surprised. Ironically, uh, Elizabeth Bear on social media, I think it was on her Substack, was talking about in general what the purpose of science fiction is or what art is supposed to do. Mm. And this is this is what she said. The world itself seems pretty grimdark right now. And possibly when that happens, art needs to remind people that it is possible to get through the horrors of the day and keep a part of your soul. Just as during those times when the world seems less horrible in any place, it might be important for art to remind us that there are places where that is not true. Very good. I do a lot of handyman type of work. Mm. Plumbing and electrical work and carpentry. I had to repair my sawhorses a couple of weeks ago so that I could take them down to my mom's house and help her paint her new house. Yeah. And as as I was reading this story, I was thinking, oh, how would you actually make that generator? And I, I have copper wire and I have some of that stuff. We have a garden in the back. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, how, how would you make all this stuff from first principles? That's always the challenge, isn't it? And yeah. in, in that respect, this story reminded me of the BBC um, series from the 70s called Survivors, which is exactly about that. It's about the end of civilization and then how on earth do you rebuild? So that was another thing that I liked about this story. It, it reminded me of other things that I've seen or read. Can I ask you one other thing about mm. uh, The Year Without Sunshine? Yeah. I read three science fiction sets recently written about post-apocalyptic things. There's Knock at the Cabin, there's leave the world behind and then the year without sunshine yeah and i don't know if it's a trend because i don't read everything that comes out but it used to be that if you had a comet strike or a plague or a nuclear war or an alien invasion that it was all about what causes the apocalypse yeah these recent stories seem to be more focused on day one you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Day yeah, zero yeah. happened. You need to know that it happened, but that's kind of it. We're, it's, that's not the important part. The important part is what happens after. I, d I don't know how universal that is because I'm not well enough read in contemporary science fiction, but that seems to be a big difference. And I wonder if it's because this is post 9-11. Most of us didn't actually see the incident of 9-11 as it happened. We saw it played back later. But what we did see is the consequence. We saw the aftermath. And I wonder if that's where it's coming from. I don't Interesting. know. Whereas if, if you go back to War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells has to show you this strange thing as it landed out of the skies. And he has to show it being opened because otherwise you wouldn't believe him. So a fair amount of time is spent with that aspect of the story. Then most of the story actually is dealing with the consequences. Well, and... To add to that, the 2019 BBC miniseries adaptation, mm. it's three episodes, but it's really an episode and a half. Mm. The first episode and a half is about the adaptation of The War of the Worlds. Yeah. The second half, and it's all interleaved, so it's not like, you know, the first 90 minutes is one story and the next 90 minutes is the other. Yeah. The other half is six to seven years later about the aftermath of that. And so half right. of the you know adaptation is what happens in the long term. That's a peculiar way of doing War of the Worlds, isn't it? I, I remember watching that and being very um, unhappy. Yeah, at first I was happy to see a period accurate adaptation of what, yeah. what of the original story. But then I'm like, yeah. wait a minute, this is a young child. That's six to seven years later. And <laughs> the story itself is pretty clear that the red plants died. But here we are in this neo-Martian Earth. And anyway, I've led us pretty far astray at this point. <laughs> Just one last thing to say on that, though. My reaction to that when I saw it was, you know how you sort of talk to the TV and you, you tell it off. I, I sort of talked to it and, and said, you wouldn't have done that with Dickens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they did. Oh. <laughs> the, the Apple TV Plus adaptation of Spirited with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. Mm. It's a reimagining and sequel to A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Christmas Carol is a bit different because that's been done so many times that I think anybody who does it is almost obliged to do it in a different way. But if you're the BBC and you're adapting Bleak House or the old Curiosity Shop, you try to do it as the book because that's what people expect. 
there's a dual standard uh, at work when it's science fiction. It's, oh, no, we've got to mess around with this. <laughs> <laughs> now you're starting to sound like me. <laughs> <laughs> Should we move on? Let's, yeah. Uh, next one I've got is End of Play by Chelsea Sutton. I don't have any notes at all about Chelsea Sutton, so I don't know anything about the author. Do you know anything? I don't. I think there was a, a bio. I just didn't make any notes. This one I, was a bit strange in the way that it's sort of laid out on the page um, typographically, because it, it goes from, even if you don't read what the story is about, you are consciously aware that some of it is written like standard prose and some of it's like dialogue. Some of it, I think, is italicised and some of it is written like a stage play. Uh, yeah. So even just leafing through the story, you get the sense that this is uh, a playful piece. And that does remind me of a lot of new wave science fiction, which you know, would do that same kind of thing. As for what the story is about, it's pretending to be autobiographical. But it sort of presents itself as if it's in the form of a stage play where the leading actor has died and has come back as a ghost. And I quite enjoyed reading it for about the first half because it was a bit comic, a bit playful. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the, the author has a, a, a very good way with words. And it was a bit like watching a good stand-up set, you know, a good comedy set. But I what I couldn't see was why it was appropriate to present the story in this particular way. Except for one thing, which I thought about two days later, because this story did stay with me. And it occurred to me that this sort of presenting it as if it's a stage play, obviously with the stage play, you have rehearsals. You go over material again and again and again. And I was wondering if that is part of what the story is, that this a character has died and you're kind of playing things over in your mind again and again and of course it's called end of play mm -hmm. so so i th i think this story is doing something sophisticated i didn't fully understand it or appreciate it on first reading but i found myself thinking about this one for about three days so I think there's something good here. I, I agree. I, I'm particularly struck by the end of the story where she's talking with Lou, her former boyfriend. Yeah. And it falls into this me and you and me and you. And it's like she's she's reminding this person when they talk later about what happened back then at the end of this play mm -hmm. and kind of filling in all the gaps as to what happened, like yeah. a coffee shop visit. Yes. Yeah. Some of it, like you mentioned, is just ridiculous. Like the actress that that's starring across from the ghost decide that she likes her leading man's method so much she's going to try and commit suicide in her car to also become a ghost. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, wow, that's that that on top of the other suicide story was just a little heavy. And it's a good job they didn't put those two close together because you know that, that would have been a very sharp change of tone. I think. Let's move on to the next one. Okay. We're looking for the best by Cecile Cas Ca Castellucci. Cecile Castellucci. Yes, thank you. Who I gather is a New York Times best-selling author of young adult books. Would you like to have a go at summarizing this one? Yeah, this is a ghost story. Mm. And it's a story about a, a ghost that is almost like the sixth sense with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Who doesn't know they're a ghost originally. Yeah. <laughs> then finds out that in order to continue in his afterlife, he has to go perform a haunting. And the haunting he gets to perform is on his ex-boss, yeah. whose firing may have caused him to kill himself. There's a lot of killing yourself in this in this episode, <laughs> this, this issue. Issue, yeah, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's about the utter horror and the way he goes about visiting it on his ex-boss. And then they, they have this huge revelation because the haunting business really hasn't been going so well for people. And so he brings his discoveries back to the, the council to help them do better hauntings. Yeah, there's a couple of people. I think it's the boss and the partner who tell this character that they just sort of disappear all the time and they're, they're hard to contact. And I thought that was nicely done because that, that doesn't make them sound supernatural, but it could, you know, and that, that makes them seem sort of suitable for the job. And I like the fact that uh, they go along for this. It's not a job interview, is it? It's a, it's a test 
they go they go along to do this test <laughs> <laughs> and thinking well what is this job oh you just do the test oh okay i'll do the test and then they find out uh, that it's uh, being a ghost which i thought was quite nice yeah and, and then after haunting the the boss i think the story says that they're going to go on to haunt a teacher one yeah one of their old teachers which <laughs> yeah. i thought was quite good <laughs> yes there's a lot of revenge in this story yeah yeah. I didn't think the main character was particularly likable because they do seem to blame everyone else for the, for all of their misfortunes. Mm-hmm. But by becoming a ghost and, and taking revenge on people, they seem to have found their perfect lot in life. So although I didn't like the character in the sense of I wouldn't like them as a person, from a story point of view, it, it all ties together. The way the person is characterised matches perfectly with this new role that they find as a ghost. I thought that was all rather good. Don't know if I would ever read this again, though. It, it was fun, even though it's dealing with some dark stuff. Yeah, uh, the subway scene I thought was pretty funny. Don't remember that one. What happens? Uh, so the ghost gets their assignment and they're going to their, their boss's house and they have to ride the subway. Mm. And another ghost is on the subway and it you know he thinks that they're trying to move in on on their home where they've been hanging out and haunting ah okay should we go on to the next one yeah um, and i think this is the last story uh, this is a piece of the continent by marissa lingan oh and before we go any further uh, a little challenge for you and the listeners <laughs> okay in the in the little bio for marissa lingan it says and i quote they are among the top SF writers in the world who were named after fruit. So obviously Marissa Lingen, I presume, is named after the Lingenberry. Anyway, the challenge, can you name any other authors who are named after fruit? Um... <laughs> I came up with two. Okay, who do you have? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm getting nothing. Okay, well, there's CJ Cherry. Oh, <laughs> Okay, okay, it's a homonym. I'll give you that. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, well, this harks back to an earlier episode of the, the podcast where Seth was with us. Ray Bradbury. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Diabolical. <laughs> Just, oh. <laughs> so, uh, A Piece of the Continent. This one is about two friends uh, who go on a road trip to Alaska, like you do, mm-hmm. uh, to scatter the ashes of their respective grandfathers. And it turns out that one of them, Ollie, well, I'm going to say seems to, seems to be from a family that practices magic and summons up their grandpa's ghost. Ollie's got the ashes of their grandfather and... Uh, somehow summons him up from those ashes by doing some, I don't know, incantation or or other. And then the other friend on the road trip, Lucy, sort of copies that, and they end up with the two grandpas revived from the dead, and the grandpas protect them from Ollie's mother, who appears to be some sort of witch. So it all sounds very unlikely, <laughs> no matter how I try to describe it. Having fought off the mother, they then continue, all four of them, the two friends and the two ghostly grandfathers, they carry on to Alaska. And I thought this one was enormous fun. I really, really like the dialogue of this. There's something about the the way the author writes dialogue uh, of these characters. I found it funny and engaging it's really very good and this is the only story in the issue where it was over a lot quicker than i expected i noticed with uncanny at the very beginning of the story they tell you the word count so you've got a sort of a sense of what kind of a slog you're in for with this and i, I can't remember the the word count of this probably about five thousand words or something but i was so lost in the story that i literally lost track of how much i'd read and i was just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and then the story came to an end which is quite a decent ending but you know i really enjoyed it some of the stories every time i scrolled to get to the next screen full of text i felt oh this story's never going to end but this one it just flew by i don't know what it's really about you know in terms of what's the moral of the story i don't know 
there's something nice about the generational aspect uh, this thing of the grandparent supporting the grandchild and fending off the mother who's from the intervening generation do you know what i mean yeah the, the grandparents are normally on the side of grandchildren yeah so i was thinking about christmas stories yeah and there are stories that are fundamentally about christmas and there mm. are stories that are set in christmas yeah and we all we call them all christmas stories die hard is a christmas story yeah a christmas carol is a christmas story yeah but they're not the same kind of story and i think that's the same thing here this story is about you know family and all mm -hmm. the good and the bad that can happen with it and the, the magic and the fantastic element is kind of a it's it's just the setting it's not what the real meaning mm -hmm. of the story is about mm -hmm. i don't know if i would i might go back and read it because i keep thinking about it just in the back of my head every now and then yeah yeah it is one of those isn't it i think mm -hmm. for me what's most likely is that if i see marissa lingan's name again i'm going to want to read the next thing that they publish Whereas sometimes you read a story and you think, I never want to read anything again by that author. But uh, <laughs> with this one, I, that's a name I'm going to look out for again. Yeah. I think that's the last of the stories. That's all the stories. And you know, because it's a two-month issue, there's a lot of stories. I did wonder about that, how typical this was. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly want to discuss the poems or the essays at any great length. So did you read the John Scalzi review of Speed Racer? I did, but it's not a film that I've ever seen. Oh, okay. Interesting. What about you? Uh, I, I have seen the original Speed Racer. Yeah. And I've seen the movie Speed Racer, and I'm a, a big John Scalzi fan. And so yeah. I was excited to see an essay from him in this book. Mm. And it turns out in December, every day, he is reviewing a movie that he watches every December around Christmas time. He calls it his December comfort series. Okay. And this reads just like another episode from there. Right. So um, it, it, it redeemed the movie a bit for me because it is a two and a half hour long video game session almost. Yeah. It has that, that <laughs> pop and that brightness and kind of crazy storytelling that the original authors of the matrix and directors of the matrix came up with and did so well i i didn't dislike the movie but i didn't think it was that great looking at it through this lens i think i appreciate it better yeah i mean that's the impression i got from it is that he he acknowledges that there are some severe shortcomings with it as a film but he really advocates for the film so if it turns up on my screen at any point i might watch it now um, but I, I don't feel that I want to go and find it. Do you know what I mean? Not not because of anything he says, but because of what I sort of was aware of of the film from when it came out. Yeah, it's that friend you would sit and and visit with for hours, but never remember to make a phone call to. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's another essay in there as well about Doctor Who. That's written by Amanda Ray Prescott. So I read that, and I agree with some of the things in there. Disagree with some of them, but it's a, it's an interesting piece sort of speculating on what we might see from Doctor Who now that uh, we've got a new Doctor. I, I did find that the essays were interesting. I did read all of the issue. I even read the poetry here, but I, I'm not a poetry fan. A nice piece of cover art, which doesn't seem to tie to any of the stories. It just seems to be a, a nice piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. And as I think I said earlier, some of the stories... They have audio recordings of because they do a podcast uh, to go with Uncanny Magazine. Um, overall, what's your impression of this issue of Uncanny? I want to say something positive because I really enjoyed parts of it. But yeah. maybe it's my 53-year-old self-thinking that there wasn't a lot of science fiction in this mm. science fiction journal. Yeah, it's 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 very fantastic. It's very. Not to say that science fiction can't be imaginative, that everything has to be a rocket or space station or alien story, but it was science fiction light. Yeah. I mean, it calls itself on the website, it says Uncanny, a magazine of science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. So it, it is the two things. And as we've seen with other magazines that we've read, and as we've seen from things like the Hugo shortlist and the Nebula shortlist, a lot of what is honoured for being good science fiction these days isn't science fiction. It is fantasy. So I think we're, we're seeing a real blurring of lines. But to me, having read this entire issue, it's mostly a magazine of fantasy, but which is 
friendly to science fiction. But having said that, I think the best story in the issue is science fiction. That's the Naomi Kritzer story, um, The Year Without Sunshine. Mm -hmm. To me, that is un undoubtedly science fiction uh, in, in every respect. Some other stories which might be, but they, it feels mostly that we're reading stories about fantasies and ghosts, which I, I've got no problem with. But I, what I did like is there's a, a huge range of styles in here. There's, there's humour, there is science fiction, there is fantasy, there's dark stuff, there's bright stuff, there is light stuff. I, I thought it was a very good range and I'm quite impressed with it. And it does remind me that when I've, when in the past, when I physically picked up um, science fiction magazines like Fantasy and Science Fiction or Asimov's and I've read from cover to cover, this is going back like a decade or so, when print magazines were the thing, Quite often I would read those and find only one or two stories that were actually of interest. I think we sometimes expect too much of magazines. They're, you know, they're not all great. <laughs> or, yes. or the magazine might be great, but not all stories in the magazine are great. But maybe I think in the future, if I wasn't reading it for this purpose, I think I would probably skim through the stories, maybe read the first page and decide whether to proceed with the rest of the story. Or maybe pick it up on the website and say, oh, I like that one and that one and that one. I'm going to buy that issue and, and have it and then maybe read the rest if I want to. Yeah. What about doing a, it's a bit fatuous to do this, but to make a comparison between this contemporary fantasy and science fiction magazine and the historic issue that we read last time of New Worlds from 1968. Are there any comparisons to be made? Let, let me spitball and see if I can't land on something that I like. Yeah. It's highly imaginative. Some of the stories like the Pandemonium Waltz and Esqueleto, very surreal in several places. And that directly maps back to what we saw in the New Wave issue in 68. Yeah. yeah. There's a huge variety in authors. It's not just a bunch of middle or old white men. It's men and women and people of other genders and people of other races and people of other nationalities. Yeah. And yeah. I think that New Wave back in its day was quite varied as well. Mm -hmm. Not this varied, but for its time. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the diversity of the authors as well. Although the new wave in science fiction was much more diverse than the sort of golden age of science fiction, it was quite notable to me that that New Worlds issue that we read was, I think they were all male authors and... With the exception of Samuel Delaney, I think all the writers, all of the authors were white. So al although that was some diversity was coming in in the new wave, there's far more in the average issue of Uncanny or Clark's World. So I think we're, we're living in better times, definitely. But it's interesting to me that these stories are essentially still doing some of the same things that we've been seeing for well, in some cases for a couple of hundred years, you know, ghost stories, bringing ghosts back to life. Well, we've had out-and-out -out fantasies and the one science fiction story in there is a kind of a post-apocalyptic type thing. And although I, I thought it was really good, much of what it is doing is very similar to things that we've seen before. So it's, it is familiar stuff. So I don't know. I don't know how innovative Uncanny is compared to the old new wave but a lot of the new wave stuff was so innovative that you didn't have a clue what it was doing or why it was doing it you know? <laughs> yes so i don't know i i felt more comfortable with this and in fact it, it's quite striking that the the two stories that really stood out for me in this issue were stories with, that were written in a fairly conventional way they were written in the past tense somebody is telling you a story about something that has happened you know and there, there's no no messing around with the layout on the page no messing around with flashing forward and flashing back no messing around with different tenses there are some stories in this issue where it starts in the present tense and then it goes to the past tense and then they're addressing you directly and then they're 
telling the story as if they are telling a story of events that have already happened and it's in the past tense. So that's very common in modern short stories is to play around with tenses and points of view. But the two strongest stories in here were the stories that didn't do that. And I think that's telling us something. I mean, it might be telling, just telling us something about me. But um, I, I like experimentation in a story. But it's the more conventional stories in here that have stood out. Are you up for a quiz? I am ready to be quizzed. OK. This is a quiz about titles of science fiction or fantasy works. Each question has something in it that's about a title. This won't be all questions, but typically what I'm going to do is give you something where a title has been used for more than one work. And there's no scoring system for this because it's just too complicated. So this is just for fun. But feel free to buzz in whenever you think you've got the answer. OK. So here's the first one. So I'm thinking of a title. And the title is that of a short story from the year 1939 by Eando Binder, or Eando Binder. I don't know how you pronounce the surname. I've always thought it was Binder. The central character of this story is an artificial life form, and he's called Adam Link. Is this iRobot? You've got it. You've got it. <laughs> the rest of the clues would have been it was filmed twice for the TV show The Outer Limits, but the title is better known as an Isaac Asimov short story collection or fix-up novel. And as you so rightly say, iRobot. So if I were giving points, you'd have quite a lot of points there because you got it fairly, <laughs> uh, fairly early on. <laughs> well, and you kind of allowed me a meatball. We reviewed that for Take Me to Your Reader. Right, yeah. It, it is quite a well-known one. This one, on the other hand, might be a bit obscure. I don't know. So I'm going to reverse this one round a little bit. I'm going to talk about the title and then I'm going to lead to the question of who is the author. So we're starting with the title, The Light of Other Days. And that's the title of a novel from the year 2000, which is credited to Arthur C. Clarke and Stephen Baxter. OK, Light of Other Days. OK. But Light of Other Days was also the title of a short story. It's a short story about a, a sort of a substance called slow glass. And that, that Light of Other Days is written by a writer from Northern Ireland. Do you know the name of the writer? No, and that's a shame because I read that short story. Uh-huh. So when sci-fi became a channel, they also had an accompanying website because that's what one did back in the day. Yeah. And they used to publish regular science fiction. And I read this. Right, yeah. It is a very good story. It's one of his best. The author is Bob Shaw. I have to admit, I was half hoping that you might pick up on Northern Irish writer and you might have leapt in and said, James White. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> OK, here's the next one. So again, centred around a title. 1968, Agatha Christie published a crime novel called By the Pricking of My Thumbs. That title is taken from a Shakespeare quotation. Which famous work of fantasy completes that Shakespeare quotation. That would be Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. Bingo. Very good. OK, number four. This 2019 novel by Alan Batchelder shares a title with a 2017 novel by Matthew Lowes. That same title is also the title of the sixth instalment of the Old Man's War series by John Scalzi. Oh, goodness. The sixth installment is part of the Human Division, which was released as a set of novels and then as a fix-up novel called The Human Division. Right. Is that the B-team? No. No, okay. And I can give you an extra clue if you wish. Please. It sounds quite terminal. The end of all things. Correct, yes. <laughs> So there you go. So Scalzi's used a title which at least two authors have used previously. Well, I say previously. I don't know when the Scalzi one came out. It came out in 2015. Ah, so he was there first then. Okay. Yeah, and I was I was completely wrong about that. The Human Division had its series of ebooks, and The End of All Things had its series of ebooks as well. Right. 
And then the final one, number five. This is about the title of a book which is a collection of parodies, science fiction parodies, and the book is by Adam Roberts, but he credited himself on the book not as Adam Roberts, but as A-R-R-R-R Roberts, riffing on J-R-R Tolkien or George R.R. Martin. Anyway, this book of parodies by Adam Roberts has a title which is arguably a more grammatically correct title for the long-running British TV show which once starred Tom Baker and David Tennant. What is that title? Can you tell me that last Clue again, or last segment, yeah. please. The title of this book that I'm looking for is arguably a more grammatically correct title for the long-running British TV show, which variously starred Tom Baker and David Tennant. Tom Baker and David Tennant would be Doctor Who. Yeah. But the more grammatically correct would might be Who's the Doctor? Could you think of a more succinct way of varying the grammar? Doctor Who. So it's it's almost like we're asking the doctor's name. Mm-hmm. So is it, what's the doctor's name? No, I think I'm going to have to give you this one. Yes. Doctor Whom. Oh, do- <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Whom. Yes, as in to whom am I speaking? <laughs> uh, and that book, by the way, is subtitled E.T. Shoots and Leaves. So oh, gosh. <laughs> Maybe it's really a book about pirates with the, all the R's in the author's purported R. name. Yeah, it could be. R. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. As I say, there's no points for that, so it's just for fun. But uh, you've got, you got quite a few, though. So uh, well done. That was a good quiz. Thank you. <laughs> I made that one up weeks ago, and uh, for various reasons, we didn't use it yet. Shall we move on to past, present, and future? Yeah, let's. Do you have any past items? I have a couple. Mm-hmm. File 770 mentioned what they think might be a new record holder for earliest science fiction novel from 1666. Ooh. And it's The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish. Interesting. Do we know what this book is about? I don't. I believe that there's a copy on Project Gutenberg. Yeah. And I find it interesting you know, so we had a discussion about representation and gender in science fiction authors. Yeah. The earliest known science fiction comes from Mary Shelley mm-hmm. and Margaret Cavendish. Yeah. There's not a single white guy or guy <laughs> mentioned in there. Nope. So what did we do to, you know, hamstring science fiction for 70 or 80 years? Well, I think it's what white men have been doing for... <laughs> In every field, basically taking it over. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to take a look at that. You said you had uh, another one. I do. I I like mystery stories, and I particularly like Agatha Christie. And so every time one of her books comes up on the $1.99 special for an e-book, I I buy it and read it. Mm -hmm. And the Agatha Christie story, The Big Four, is a science fiction story. Really? Yes. (laughs) Again, it's a fix-up novel made from a series of other postings. It's one she didn't particularly like, but it has a French chemist who is working on atomics and the concentration of wireless energy so that a beam of great intensity can be focused upon some given sport. Wow. Written in 1927. And it was recently adapted by the BBC. Ah. I've got one past item. To be honest, I've probably used before. In recent weeks, I have resumed my rewatch of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, Several times in my life, I've tried to get through the entire series, and I usually get bored about halfway through. I've now completed four and a half seasons out of seven, so I'm nearly there. And if you believe what you read on the internet, Deep Space Nine is all about serialised storytelling. And I can tell you, having watched four and a half seasons out of seven, it ain't. It's <laughs> It's got some serialised storytelling, but it's got an awful lot of standalone episodes, even in season five, which I thought was going to you know, start becoming almost like a soap opera with its r- continuous storytelling. Still is full of standalone episodes, some of which are terrible. 
Some people say that this is the best Star Trek series there ever was. I've never believed that because I've never seen the evidence of it. I'm hoping that any day now, as I continue through the remaining two and a half seasons, that it will get better. But uh, I mean, it's okay, but it's not as good as people say it is. So there you go. What about present items? What have you got? I actually don't have any present items. Oh, I have two. One is I've been watching the Doctor Who specials. Um, It's the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who this year. So uh, Russell T. Davis has come back as showrunner and writer. And before bringing in the new Doctor, who's coming in very, very soon, they've made, I think, three specials with David Tennant back as the Doctor. I've seen two of them and they're, they're great fun really well written a bit light i think you know there's not not a sort of huge deep meaning behind any of them the first one i think was a little bit more deep and meaningful than the second one but it's it's very well done and it's good to have someone back in the reins who knows how to run doctor who the other present item is uh, something you mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago which is the book a city on mars by Kelly and Zach Weinersmith. You asked me if we had discussed it or if we should discuss it on the show. And I said, what is it? I don't even know what it is. (laughs) And it turned out when you told me what it was, oh, yes, I've already got that. And uh, I haven't read all of it. I've got about a quarter of the way through the book. But so far, it's pretty good. Uh, It's uh, discussing basically all the reasons why we won't be going into space. Nonfiction, of course. How did you get on with it? I haven't started to read it yet. Ah, okay. My idea was that, you know, we talk about science fiction with its hopes and dreams. And here are these people who are really kind of grounding everything. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, you know, Andy Ware wrote The Martian. And then we found out, I think just around the time the movie was being made or was released, that perchlorates were in the soil and it made the entire oh, yeah. story implausible. Yes. <laughs> and so I thought it'd be an interesting counterpoint Perhaps we should come back to it in a future episode then and do a proper review. Cool. What about future items? You got any future items? Uh, Yeah, I have two. The first one is short and sweet. The Murderbot series, which you and I looked at in All Conditions Red, uh, has been picked up by Apple TV Plus to be adapted. Yes. The social medias are just on fire about this. (laughs) Some people are saying, if you change anything at all, I shall hate you forever and hunt you down. (laughs) And then there are more practical ones. And one of the more practical ones actually comes from John Scalzi, Hmm. who was talking to someone adapting one of his works. He didn't say which, although everyone in the world hopes that it's Old Man's War. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the Kaiju book, the Kaiju Preservation Society. Anyway, yeah. he said that he had had his say on a particular subject and the screenwriter who was adapting it, it was their turn now to do something and have their own say. Yeah. And that, that struck me as something very gracious, but it makes me wonder, right? We, we have an established work that is popular and that people like, and then you're telling someone, oh, make changes to it and do what you want. <laughs> and that's that's a very sarcastic take on what screenwriters really, really do. But there is a gamble that happens. Yeah. Sometimes there are great adaptations. And I'm going to bring back The Martian because I think it's a good adaptation. And then you look at something like Jumper, which mm. takes the very barest grains of the original story and then does something completely different with it that I really didn't care for. Yeah. So I'm hoping it turns out well. It could be like the Foundation series, which is good science fiction, tangentially related to the original source material. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my future item as well. So I'll cross that off. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. Well, I I don't think you'll have the next one I have. So Fathom Events is a, a company that takes pop culture events and puts them back on the big screens back mm-hmm. in cinemas. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the ballet, you can see drum and bugle corps competitions. And of particular interest to our podcast is science fiction movies that come back to the screen. Okay. So in November of 2024, the fifth element will be back on big screens. <laughs> Who's going to go and see that? Oh, me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here in the UK, that film is constantly on terrestrial TV. I haven't seen it for a long time, but for the longest while, you could almost every week you could switch on your TV and see The Fifth Element. I mean, not that it's a bad film, but it occurs to me that in the UK, everyone must have seen it at least five times by now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Any more future items? No. So are we done? I think so, yeah. I think so. I think we've had a, a comfortable re-landing back in the present day, even though we're not entirely sure that... Uh, we. I think we might have stepped on a butterfly when we were back in the uh, New Wave era, and I think we might have inadvertently changed the future of science fiction so that it is all now New Wave. Oh, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, folks. We're Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky. Our theme tune is from Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Check out the show notes at 101sf.blogspot.com and please give us a glowing five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you find your pods. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.